This morning, we're going to be looking at a section of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. So I want to first go ahead and invite you to turn over there. If you have a Bible this morning, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible, there are, are Bibles placed at the center of each aisle that, that we'd love for you to have. We'd love for you to take it home with you. Make that your copy. And we'd love to talk to you about what you read there. Uh, that, nothing will make us happier than for you to take one and to follow up with us about anything that isn't clear to you as you start to read about Jesus and who he is. This morning, we're going to be spending time in the book of Ecclesiastes, a book that doesn't say anything about Jesus, but that in another sense is all about Jesus. Ecclesiastes is part of what, what we know as the wisdom literature in the Bible. The wisdom literature is a collection of books that have universal appeal. They, they're not like a lot of other books in the Old Testament. Maybe if, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, one of the things that you've noticed if you've read anything at all in the Old Testament is how foreign it can seem, is how much of the Old Testament is full of names that you can't pronounce and, and genealogies of kings that you don't recognize or understand as that important, that, that's full of laws that, that are all about what to eat and what not to eat and what to sacrifice when. But the wisdom literature doesn't have any of that stuff. It doesn't have anything really about the history of Israel. No prophecies about a coming Messiah. The wisdom literature is about universal themes. Things that people everywhere who are paying attention to life have noticed if they've been paying close enough attention. Wisdom literature is not about, not about having a set of laws that you abide by, but about developing a skill for living well in the world as it is. Now, this characteristic of wisdom literature, that it's, that it's about life as it is, life in the world, makes the wisdom literature seem remarkably contemporary to us. And I think that's especially true of the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been in this book for the last several weeks. It's a book that's full of darkness. A book that imagines, what is the world like? And more specifically than that, what matters in a world where God doesn't exist. The author is talking about vanity. That's his key word. It comes up over and over and over again. Vain. Everything is empty, meaningless. If all you think about is life under the sun. That's his other main phrase. Vanity and under the sun. And the book is one example after another of things that he tried out in his life, looked for meaning there, realized that there wasn't anything there, realized that it was empty and meaningless if there is no God, and so throws up his hands and moves on. Now, this morning, the example that we're going to be teasing out together is what he has to say about money. We've, we've asked the question, what good is wisdom if you're just going to die at the end of your life? What good is work or accomplishment if you're just going to die at the end of your life? What good is pleasure if you're just going to die? And this morning we ask, what good is wealth if your life doesn't last, if all there is is what's under the sun. I think on, on this theme, Ecclesiastes is especially contemporary. Now, there's a sense, there's a sense in which the guy who wrote this book could never have imagined the world that we live in, the world of the West, the opulence and luxury that's possible not just for the uber-wealthy in our society, but for this huge middle class that just continues to grow. For example, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago a book called The Progress Paradox by a guy named Greg Easterbrook. 
His book is a book about how everything pretty much just keeps getting better and better for the middle class in the West, and everyone just keeps getting less and less happy. At the same time, that almost as things continue to get better, people grow less and less contented and happy in life. He gives a lot of examples for this. One of the most interesting to me is, this, is the problem, the uniquely first world problem of what to do if what you have on your hands are multiple high-end self-winding watches. Now, maybe you didn't know this, but if you, if you get a really high-end watch, usually there's no battery in there, or you don't have to wind it like that. It, it, it winds itself through the movement of your arms. So if you've got four or five Rolexes, then you've got yourself a problem. Because you can only wear one at a time. And if you can only wear one at a time, and the ones that aren't getting worn, well, they're, they're going to fall off a, a nice synchronized timing pattern. So, Easterbrook notes, what you do if you've got that problem on your hands is you go to this particular store where you can get a calfskin box for $5,700 that has four mechanical wrists in the box that will wind all day your self-winding watches for you. Now, the real, Easterbrook didn't have this example, but I did a little research on my own, and he would have loved this. Not only can you get the calfskin-covered one for $5,700, but Brookstone is now marketing the same device to us, the middle class. For $200, you can get a four-wristed box to wind your self-winding watches for you. Now, there's a sense in which Ecclesiastes could have never imagined a world that needed self-winding watch boxes. (laughs) But there is another sense in which Ecclesiastes predicted exactly what we're experiencing. Because Ecclesiastes told us something like 3,000 years ago that even if you have yourself four self-winding watches and a calfskin box to wind them for you, you are not going to be happy. Ecclesiastes predicts the vanity of wealth. And it gets us exactly. Our text this morning does more than just predict what we're experiencing now. It also explains why we experience wealth the way that we do. And it points us towards another way. Two steps we're going to take this morning. One that will take most of our time unpacking this text. We're going to talk about what this text says about how to come up empty. If you really want to live a life that's empty, here's how. And then, for a contrast, we're going to talk about how to be content. The text points the way Jesus brings us home. I'm going to start with how to come up empty. I'm going to begin by reading our text for us this morning. If you would, please stand with me. I'm going to read from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Uh, Verses 10 to 20. This is the word of the Lord. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich won't let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came. 
and shall take nothing for all his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. This text that we just read, most of it anyway, is asking the same question that we've seen in the previous weeks of our time in Ecclesiastes. It's the same question that was asked of work, of pleasure, of wisdom. What gain is there? What good? And the answer is the same. There is no gain. There is no lasting good from money, only vanity. And he gives us two, ex- two examples out of his experience to make the point. I want to summarize those examples. You see that on your worship guide if you're following along in the outline. Really simple points. Wealth can't make you happy. There's example number one. And wealth can't make you secure. There's example number two. If that's what you're looking for, what gain is wealth? If what you're looking for is happiness... No gain from wealth. If what you're looking for is security, no gain from wealth. You're striving after the wind. Wealth can't make you happy. This is his claim in verse 10. And he illustrates it in verses 11 and 12. So verse 10 says, He who loves money, when that's what your heart is drawn to, will not be satisfied by money. Give your heart to money for its own sake. When money is the key to your happiness in life, you'll never be satisfied. It's vanity, emptiness, nothing. And that rings true, doesn't it? Doesn't that ring true? Have you ever felt like you had all you wanted? Now, I get that there's some satisfaction that comes with a new purchase. That there's some satisfaction, some happiness even that can come with, with having a little bit more money and what that money can buy. There's a rush, isn't there? The rush of happiness behind so many of our purchases is what leads us to go back again and again for more. It's hard to put that feeling into words, what that feeling is. Why it is that our whole world can look different, at least for a moment. Our whole world can look different after the purchase of a new car, a new house, something big, or even something little, even the purchase of a new outfit or a new gadget, pretty much any day I've ever come home with something from the Apple store has been a happy day. (laughs) That day was a good day for me. The closest I can come to putting words to that feeling is that these things make us feel new. They're not just new. The money and what we're able to buy with it makes us feel new, at least for a time. 
that it's like a new beginning. Even in something small, it feels almost like a new beginning. If, if only for a moment, a chance to rally ourselves, to overcome what we don't like about our lives. Retail therapy is a real thing. But happiness that comes that way never lasts. You're never really satisfied. That's verse 10. But why? Why is it that this rush of happiness we get from money and possessions doesn't last? Just keeps us wanting more. Verse 11 points us towards that answer. It's his example, his illustration for his claim in verse 10 that, that, that running after money is never going to satisfy you, so don't even try it. Verse 11 says, When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Maybe at first that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. What he's saying really is that as your stock possessions rise, as the number in your bank account rises, so do the things you feel like you can't live without. So do the responsibilities that are on your plate. So do the financial commitments that you make, the contracts that you sign, the advisors that you have to have on your payroll to make sure you're spending your money well, the insurances that you have to buy to protect what it is that you have. As goods increase, they increase who eat them. Now, I've given you some contemporary examples of that. Probably what this guy had in mind was that there's more dependents, more actual people who need to eat what you have that will be hanging on to you, the more goods that you have. It's not unheard of in our day for this to show up. Every so often, probably pretty much every year, there's a pro athlete that's holding out on a contract that's promising to pay him $50 million because he thinks he's got $60 million coming to him. And pretty much every year, one of these guys is going to justify himself holding out, staying out of training camp. He's going to justify his holdout with something like, I got to feed my family. I got to put food on my family's table. Almost every year, somebody says that. Now, and we laugh at that, right? That you're going to get 50 million, you're holding out for an extra 10 so that you can feed your family. That's ridiculous. You need to get some perspective. And that's true to, to an extent. But psychologically, that guy does feel that way. He really does feel to him. He's not just blowing smoke. He really feels like he's got to have this to provide for his family. And the reason is that he's trying to get by based on the sense of need that comes from the culture he's part of, from the demands of that culture. See, he lives in a different world than we live in. Different set of expectations. Different set of requirements. As his goods have increased, so has his sense of need. Uh, there's a, a really excellent documentary on this uh, put out by ESPN's 30 for 30 production series. It's called Broke. And it studies, it's a study of why so many multimillionaire athletes uh, end up broke. So here's a stat for you. Within two years of retirement, 78% of former NFL players have declared bankruptcy or are under finance, significant financial strain. 78%. Within five years, 60% of NBA players are broke. 
The film is trying to explore why that's the case. What happens to these guys and their money? Well, some of it is the extravagant purchases. These are competitive dudes. That's what makes them good at what they do on the field. They're competitive. And that, comp- that competitiveness creeps into how they spend money. So they're competing with each other, right? And so their sense of what they have to have to keep up with the people in their world rises with their money. Part of it's competition. Part of it is that they make bad investments in businesses that don't work or that they get piled up gambling debts. For some of them, the film points to child support is the issue. That they'll be supporting many kids by many different women who maybe sought them out for exactly that purpose because of their money. One, one former quarterback estimated that during his time on the payroll, he was supporting somewhere between 25 and 50 families. Supporting them. Now, it's easy to point our finger at, the, at guys like this, right? These multi-millionaire athletes. And scoff at them. But at some level, hasn't this been your experience too? Seriously, do you feel right now like you have everything you need? Like you have plenty? Is that what you feel like? Or do you feel like everything you make is spoken for? Ten years ago, if you imagined the income that you have now, would you have known then how to spend it all? As your income has grown, so have your expected costs. Maybe it's childcare. Maybe it's the utility bills that have grown as your house has grown. Maybe it's car payments and larger mortgages. Maybe it's what you want to eat now. Your tastes have changed and gotten more expensive. Maybe it's where you go on vacation and for how long. Hasn't your life borne out one way or the other? The claim of verse 11, that as your goods have increased, so have those who eat them? His point in verses 10 to 12 is that the one who loves wealth is never, will never be wealthy enough. Wealth can't make you happy. If you're looking for happiness, it's vanity and striving after win. Wealth also can't make you secure. That's his next point. Picks up in verse 13. Some people will look to wealth. Maybe this is true of some of you. This, is, this is, it rings true for me in my experience. Some of us are going to look to wealth less for the rush that we get with a new purchase than for the stability or security we feel with a growing bank account. We just like to look at those numbers, right? Just stare at them as they grow. You can be really frugal. You can make really good, wise financial decisions. You can save pretty much everything you have. And basically what you're doing is spending your money feeling secure. You're spending your money on a sense of security that you get from it. But whether you recognize it or not, yet, your wealth, that bank account, no matter how high it grows, 
cannot make you secure. And that's true for two reasons our author points us to here. A couple examples from the things he's experienced in his life. One of them really specific, a really specific reason that you can't trust wealth for security. And another one that's more general, that's true for all of us. So his specific example comes out in verse 13. There's a grievous evil I've seen. Here's my experience. Let me tell you what I've seen in my days under the sun if you're looking for money to make you secure. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. He stressed over piling up what he had. Preserving it, protecting it. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. It doesn't say, it's not, not speaking of a foolish venture. It's not that he made a stupid decision about where to invest his money. It's that he, he had his money somewhere that ended up bad. Against all of, despite all of his careful planning, despite all the stress and intentionality he put into it, he lost everything. He couldn't protect it. And now he has nothing to give to his son. What this guy lost, or what he learned through his experience, what our author's pointing us to, is the truth that the more wealth you have, the more you have to lose. Rather than making you more secure, the more money you have, the more vulnerable you are. The more pain you can experience in your life because of what it's going to feel like to you to lose it. The more you have, the more you lose. Then in verses 15 and 17, he, he takes that specific lesson somebody who learned by losing everything that they were never secure to begin with. And he applies it to all of us. He's basically saying in in verses 15 and 17, all of you are going to lose everything because all of you are going to die. Look at verses 15 and 17. As he came from his mother's womb, so he shall go again, naked as he came. And he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Verse 16, just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the win? Maybe you sock away your money. You make lots of wise investments. You never chase the quick and easy dollar. But still, friends, what do you have? What gain? Nothing. Because you can't take it with you. He's pointing us back here, chapter 5, to what we've seen him point us to over and over already in the first few weeks. It's a concern that's lurking behind all pretty much everything he says in the whole book. His obsession, his underlying reason for the vanity of everything in our lives is that we're all going to die. It's always on his mind. Everything is meaningless, emptiness, vanity, because everyone dies. So no matter how careful you are, your wealth can't make you secure. You can either lose it in this life, like the guy in the first example, Or you will, absolutely, you will lose it in death. So Rockefeller, the moment he breathed his last, he was penniless. And the same will be true of Warren Buffett and of Mark Zuckerberg and of every one of us. Do you realize the truth of this statement? Does the truth of this statement show up at all in the way that you pursue wealth? A journalist named Jessica Mitford back in the 1960s published this lightning rod send-up of the American funeral industry called The American Way of Death. It is an awesome book. Hilarious. Uh, It's satire, really, on the ridiculous way that funeral homes market the appendages of death, if you will, to the bereaved 
who've just lost loved ones. She gives example after example. Here's what she says. This is a summary of what she sees. And I'm quoting here. The same familiar Madison Avenue language with its peculiar adjectival range designed to anesthetize sales resistance to all sorts of products has seeped into the funeral industry in a new and bizarre guise. The emphasis is on the same desirable qualities that we've been schooled to look for in our daily search for excellence, comfort, durability, beauty, craftsmanship. What makes these traits ridiculous is that they describe products for dead people, for corpses. So she gives examples of shoe companies who market shoes for the dead. You can get patent leather. You can get them in camel, calfskin, tan. You can get shoes with soft cushioned soles described as having the luxurious slipper-like comfort. You can get undergarments for the corpses of women. There are caskets with adjustable foam mattresses. And they're made with materials promised to last forever, to protect forever. There are funeral plots that you can buy that come at a higher cost because they have a lovely view. There are crypts that you can use that come at a higher cost because they're air-conditioned and play music 24-7. You can even pay extra in some cemeteries to be in a particular neighborhood of the cemetery surrounded by people of a class that suits your particular distinction. Now, we hear these examples, especially if you read them for yourself, the way that she describes them. And we laugh. We should. It's ridiculous to think about the comfort of a soft foam mattress for a corpse. We see how ridiculous it is. But friends, what what our author is saying is that we're corpses. And we spend so much of our time, our effort, our emotional energy, our money, trying to dress up Corpses trying to cushion coffins. Look around your house. The stuff that's in there is decorating a coffin. It's just as ridiculous. When we geek out over a new tweed jacket, a new set of pumps, a new shade of lipstick, new gadget or accessory or some new highlights in the hair? Aren't we just dressing up corpses before their burial? Naked you came, naked you'll go, and you'll take away nothing for which you have toiled all the days of your life. Wealth can't make you secure. Do you get that? Would your friends who know you well enough to see what you do with your money, say that you get that? Most of this passage is pointing us towards how to to come up empty in life. 
That's why we spent most of our time here. It's bleak. Ecclesiastes is meant to show us a darkness against which the light of Christ will pop out in all of its brilliance. I want to close by pointing you towards two things you need to remember if you want to be content rather than empty. One of them is pointed to in the last verses we read together this morning, verses 17 to 20 of Ecclesiastes 5. The first thing you need to connect with if you want to be content in life rather than running in a rat race that's going to end up empty. You need to trust the providence of God. That's the first thing. Did you notice verses 17 to 20? Or excuse me, verses 18 to 20? When our author actually turns from the bleakness of the first seven verses we read to talking about what he's found to be good in life, he's talked about what he's found to be empty in life. What I've found to be good in life is just to enjoy yourself. Eat and drink and enjoy your work. It almost sounds like fortune cookie wisdom. Like a simplistic and easier said than done kind of dismissive suggestion that you'd expect on a Hallmark card. Until you realize that, what, that there's a key word here. This passage is not about his life lesson. It's about God. All of a sudden, God has entered the picture. What is good and fitting is to find enjoyment in the life that God has given you. God. To accept the lot that God has given you. Then he refers to everyone to whom God has given Wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. This is the gift of God, he says in verse 19. All of a sudden, God has entered the picture and joy has come with him. What? How? What's he pointing us to? Here he's just pointing us to the fact of the providence of God. That what we have in our lives, what we get to enjoy now, we only get to enjoy fully if we recognize that it came from him. That means we don't have to protect it. We may lose it all. We will eventually lose it all. We're going to trust the same providence who gave it to us to begin with. And we don't have to seek more than what he's given. We don't have to notice what we don't have more clearly than what we do because we trust our lot comes from him. Recognize your lot is a gift. What you have is what he's given you. So stop thinking about what you don't have and enjoy what, it ha- what you do have. Death offers remarkable clarity here. You aren't going to be able to keep it anyway. You couldn't have given it to yourself to begin with. You can't protect it. So just enjoy it. It's a gift from God. Only if you trust in the providence of God can you, can you really embrace the good things in life, the really good things in life, without allow, allowing those things to be defined by their limitations and by the fact that you're going to die. Trust the providence of God. That's the first step towards contentment. That's verses 18 to 20. But that only gets us so far, friends. That only gets us so far. It may help us to enjoy the life that we've been given as long as our life lasts, but still there's nothing else we can do about it. There's not much hope in verses 18 to 20. There's maybe joy in the life you live for the few days of your life, but not much hope. The hope that we need, the possibility for an even greater contentment, comes with Christ. This book is here to help us see why the coming of Christ matters so much. 
So the second thing you got to do if you want to be content is not just trust the providence of God. You got to trust in the promises of God made to you through Jesus. The amazing message of the gospel is that one who actually had real wealth, one who actually had a wealth that wouldn't wither and fade, that wouldn't ever come up vanity, one who had a real wealth you couldn't even imagine for yourself, a wealth that was his and that was unlosable, gave up everything. He emptied himself. And he took on our emptiness. He took on our vanity. He took on a body that would die just like ours. Imagine it. We spend all of our lives pursuing money and what it buys us. Despite the fact that it is never going to satisfy us and it won't ever last. We treat our money like it's our private issue walled off from the life of God, the lives of our neighbors. We have pursued what won't last as if He is not. He, owner of lasting true wealth, has emptied Himself for us. This one so neglected by us for our sakes became poor so that he could share his inheritance with us. This is how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is the promise that can fasten our hearts to an inheritance of riches that will never fade away. Where your treasure is, Jesus says in Matthew, there your heart will be also. If you want to be content in this life, You've got to put your heart with your treasure where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where no thieves will ever break in and steal. When Paul points us here towards the the promises of God, calls on us to trust this promise of God, he makes this call to us in the context of a letter where he's writing to try to convince his friends to give money to some other Christians who needed it in a different city. His words about Jesus, one who really was rich, for our sakes becoming poor so that we might know his riches, his words there are given as a reason for giving away your money now, money you can't keep. Riches that won't last for giving it away freely now because you know your wealth is in heaven. So here's here's my concluding question for you. Do you see what you have, what God has given you to enjoy, 
as truly yours or as something that belongs to him that he's put in your life for you to use well? Do you see what you have as a way to beef up your comfort in this life? To spruce up the coffin? Or do you see what you have as an opportunity to invest in the world that owns your heart? Enjoy what, you, what God gives you now for what it is and while you have it. Embrace that it is not enough and it is not going to last. And then give it away. Why would you hold something that can't hold you anyway? Father, I pray that you would help us not to fall into the snare that is the love of money. It comes so easy to us to define our lives, our value, based on what we have, based on what we can buy, based on the number on a computer screen that says how much money is ours. Value that comes from comparing what we have to what other people have. So much in us, in our hearts, is geared up to love money. And we know that that's going to stay true unless your spirit does a work in us that changes what we love. Everything about the culture we live in gears us up one direction. Your gospel calls us in a radically different direction. And if you don't give what you call for from us, we'll never get there. So our prayer to you this morning is to satisfy us with the riches you have set aside, the riches Christ has purchased on our behalf forever so that we're freed up to live now in light of that kingdom to come. We pray for this gift in Jesus' name. Amen.